You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. So you don't know I what I can't remember. Doing. I'm and, terrible. You know, and that's fair. Because I think, too, you know, the monarchy is explicitly white do you know what i mean and so Mm -hmm. i think in the white consciousness it's probably a little bit more of a marker in our lives than it would be for people i don't know i mean i don't i wonder if my mom like maybe my mom would have remembered better because i like i i don't i i have I feel like I have other friends like you who can remember, but yeah. me, well, there was I a don't lot. Remember. The reason I think the reason I remember was because there was a lot going on all at the same time for me personally, right? Oh, so okay. August second was when I turned sixteen, okay, and I got mm-hmm. my driver's license about twenty days later oh. on the twenty first of of August. Okay? okay, the first week of school started August twenty sixth. Mm-hmm. So at the end of that first week, which was August 31st, there was a little get together party. It was a Saturday night with just like my band geek friends. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I was going to be driving on my own somewhere. And it Mm -hmm. was like a five minute drive. So it wasn't that big a deal, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Landmark in my own mind because Mm -hmm. I had just gotten my license. So I drove to the party and then I drove home and I got home just in time to watch SNL. And then the (laughs) news cut in at the end of SNL saying exactly princess Diana has died in a car crash. And I just remember going, what? And I think it was actually the first time in my memory that I can like, that I can pinpoint like a celebrity or someone that I knew and, and, uh, you know, was, I don't know, like a, bigger part of my life than any other celebrities at the time. Do you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Like mm-hmm. that the first time that, that a person like that had died and because it was so such a, a tragic way to die, it just stuck in my mind. That well. And so if you were watching SNL, that means it was like 1130. Yeah, it was late. So it's possible I was in bed, which yeah. is why I don't remember. And then I heard about it the next morning from my yeah. mom and grandmother. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And then I do remember watching it on the news, like, you know, the moments oh, before yeah. and stuff like that on yeah. repeat for like I mean, days and days. I remember watching too, like, uh, um, it was a graphic, like a, an animated graphic of how the car crashed into oh, the column yeah. and how, and I remember they, them saying that part of the reason why the car crashed and was such a dynamic crash mm-hmm. was because it was just columns that went straight down from the ceiling to the floor instead yeah. of having like a bumper. Yeah. So instead of being able to glance off away from the wall, they just hit that column and the whole car collapsed in on that column and that's part of also the reason why basically almost everyone died crazy it really is I remember it was that same uh that next school year we I was in speech Mm -hmm. and I think I did a book report on it must have been on like the paparazzi, like very specifically. Sure. And that's when I learned like the term means like buzzing gnat or buzzing. Oh, I didn't insect. know that. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, and I remember looking that up and I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense because yeah. like what they did, you know, and 
can you what they are. imagine? I mean, like, and part of me, cause like, I never wanted to be famous and maybe it's because of these kind of cautionary tales, right. but like, I don't, I mean, I don't, first of all, as Pamela Shandro in her forties and, and also probably from her thirties as well. I did not, I don't want to be perceived unless I want to be perceived. Does that make right. sense? So like, yeah. if I'm, if I'm walking from point A to point B, I want to be anonymous. I don't want right. you to look at me. I don't want you to talk to me. I just want to go where I'm going. And I can't imagine having a lifestyle that revolved around getting away from people who wanted yeah. nothing more than just a piece of you. Yeah. And to constantly be in your face. I'll never forget the, the one time I ever saw that up close was I went to see Kate Blanchett in this play called Maids. Yeah. Great play. She was wonderful. Of course. Of course. She leaves the stage door and a bunch of us are standing and waiting. We'd waited a little while. Um, and she comes out, she's beautiful in this like whole white, it's like white blazer, white. She was like <laughs> totally white from head to ethereal. toe. She wearing, she's an yeah. ethereal goddess. Yeah. Uh, like totally. <laughs> and she um, was just very calm and sweet and signing people's playbills and everything. A couple of people got a little crazy and sure. she said, don't do that. Don't do that. Good for her. But then she left our line and the paparazzi was right there. And Pamela, they were. When I tell you, you all can't see my hands, but they were in her face. Yeah. In her face, flashing bulbs in her face. And she was just so calmly with her hands in her pockets, walking to the hotel. It's like she's so used to it. Yeah. She knew what was happening. But I thought they're like yelling, Kate, Kate. I'm like, you're in her face. Yeah. I'm like, you're right there. You don't (laughs) have to yell at her, too. I, I just. I'll never forget that as long as I live, just yeah. watching her walk away to her hotel and just them flashing bulbs. I mean, like there is so no close. reason in this world that any one person is obligated to give themselves to me in any right. way. Right. And so like the, the, the idea of, I mean, just watching. And, and I will say also, cause there's a lot of like Alec Baldwin and uh, Tommy, uh, Tommy Lee, <laughs> Pamela Anderson's husband, Tommy Lee. I guess it's just Tommy it Lee. It's just Tommy Lee. Yeah. I was like, what is his last name? It is just no, Tommy you, Lee. Yeah, you're like, thinking of the actor. Yeah. Tommy oh, Lee Jones. Yes, I was. <laughs> um, who are kind of infamous for taking cameras and breaking them and punching paparazzos right. well, in the course. face. And like who can blame that. And like, but remember though that they were the ones that got you know, talks talked about and, and chastised and like, Oh, how dare you? You know, we just wanted to love you. And now we can't because you know, whatever. And then you like they, so their celebrity is at risk because they're basically fighting back, Uh, you know? And it's like, it reminds me too of like narcissistic relationships. Right. Mm -hmm. And the person that is not the narcissist has been gaslit so much to the point yep. where they are finally yelling and like get, they're going absolutely crazy and going no like this is not you can't do this and then the narcissist is like see you're nuts and they're yeah. just sitting back and watching it and that is what a paparazzi is to me oh, like totally. they're the narcissist in the relationship and you're just like oh it's so gross well and they they control the media right yeah. so that's the thing is they are they are able because they are part of the media to spin it in a way that mm-hmm. makes the other person look like they're terrible. But yeah, then like, like, I was just standing there. I was just trying to get a picture and he grabbed the camera out of my right. hand. He broke my, he, it's my lifestyle. It's mm-hmm. he broke my camera. Get out of here with that. Yeah. So yeah. gross. It's predatory. It really like, is that I just, I can't, I can't with any of predatory behavior. It's just, it's gross to me. There's no I, reason for it at all. I know it wasn't always like that because I no, uh-uh. I saw an interview with Cheryl Ladd one time and she said when she was on Charlie's Angels and she would have her daughter with her that she would ask them to not take pictures of her child and they would they would comply Wow! to the point where um, one time her daughter was with her. She was very little. I guess she was probably two or three years old. And um, she said to the cameraman, she was like, don't take pictures of the baby. <laughs> <laughs> like hadn't, it was really cute, you know, but that yeah, nothing is off limits anymore. No, they don't care. 
they don't care anymore. And the kids are like, that's, that's where the money is, I guess. Yeah. It's awful. It I is. wonder, cause like you look, you see all of these kind of tragic figures in celebrity history mm-hmm. and you, and I wonder how much of that tragedy was caused by external factors. You know, obviously there are some mental health issues in some yes. of the, but like, you know, you're pushed over the edge. It's too much when that's here every single day. Oh, it's awful. I I can't. Diana actually did something and, and uh, Daniel Radcliffe stole this idea, I think from her as well. So she Mm -hmm. used to, when she would go back and forth from the gym, wear the same top and the same shorts every single day. So that no matter how many pictures were taken of her, it always looked like it was from the same day. So it was worthless. Basically Daniel Radcliffe did the same thing when he was doing maybe Equus. Mm-hmm. or a show here in New York. He was working here in New York. He, from the stage door, would wear the exact same outfit so that anytime that they would take pictures, it was worthless. <laughs> I was like, yes. That's smart. <laughs> yeah, That's great. Yeah. Now, and also though, I will say that there's another side to that coin where mm-hmm. there are people that have, have turned into celebrities for celebrity sake and they right. use the paparazzi for their own benefit. Right. Right. And there that's, that's a mutually beneficial parasitic relationship. And mm-hmm. I'm all, you know, whatever, I'm all for that, but not everyone signs up for that. No. When they, when they enter the arts. Right. So, some people just want to be an actor. Right. That's <laughs> like, you know, or a director or a writer mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, yeah. and the real <sighs> nasty hazard I remember I do remember the narrative being like did people think things were going to change after they passed away that way and it has not even a little bit but I remember a lot of conversations about that yeah Yeah. I do too I do too there was a lot of criticism around the paparazzi and how they essentially hunted her to her death welcome to theater geeks anonymous the podcast about broadway flops scandals and new work i'm your host ebony vines and i'm your host pamela shandro don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the theater geeks anonymous podcast on the broadway podcast network and all your favorite podcast listening apps thank you, you. and then you guys we'll be- I yeah. did my, it, it, I, I went too fast. You did. You just got really excited. I it's did. All right. I did my welcome. Everyone was singing. It was great. And then <laughs> I heard this meeting is being recorded. <laughs> so let's try this again. Welcome. What's up, theater geeks? We are so excited about today's episode. We are. It's another new works, which. Yeah. And Ebony has a little bit more of a like an intimate relationship with this show <laughs> and the theater company that is performing it currently. So uh, we're all very excited to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so I believe I mentioned this before on the podcast that I'm I'm like a board member, which is bananas. <laughs> and- <laughs> And I'm on the board of this wonderful theater company based in Brooklyn called Colt Core. And currently they're doing a play called Dodie and Diana, which is, oh, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Just really <laughs> excited about it. Um, and it's at Here Arts. Um, And it runs until October 29th. And so we're just really excited to amplify this play so that more people know about it and more people can go see it while it's still running. Um, And so today we're super excited because we have the artistic director of Colt Corps, who's also the director of Dodie and Diana. And we also have the writer of the play here. And so if you too would be so kind as to introduce yourselves, Adrian, if you'd like to go first. Hi, I'm Adrian Campbell Holt. I'm also very, very excited. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And um, yeah, thank you both for having me. Thanks and for being here. Yes, we're very, <laughs> we're so happy to have you. And Kareem, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kareem Fami. I am the writer of Dodandana. I'm so happy to be on this podcast for the first time. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you. Yes. And we can't wait to talk about this uh, wonderful play. First off, the first thing we want to know about is how did this whole thing get started? I mean, I kind of know, but the geeks don't know. So we have I don't to let either. Them know. I'm, I'm going to learn all of this new, fresh information. <laughs> 
Well, I feel like Kareem, will you share the story of how you started working on this piece? And then I want to share how we came to be working on this piece together. That sounds great. Yeah. I, uh, um, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a sort of, I, I wouldn't call myself like a, a, a royal fanatic, but, you know, I, I was born and raised in Canada. So royals and royal family were very sort of in my face throughout my entire childhood. Um, and, you know, I've never been surprised that it's been this sort of constant fascination um, with the royal family and particularly with Diana over all of these years. Um, but, you know, about two, two and a half years ago, I was just sort of sitting as one does thinking about Princess Diana because apparently that's a thing that people do. And I was <laughs> really going like, you know, had a very, very strong sort of memory of that day in 1997 when she, uh, when the car crash happened and just remembering hearing all the news reporters that time saying, you know, Princess Diana and her Egyptian lover, or her Egyptian boyfriend, and I am Egyptian, both of my parents are from Egypt. And, and you know, that had stuck with me at the time. And I guess I had an awareness of, of who Dodi Fayed was at that time and who his father was. But, you know, now looking back on it, this is a couple of years ago. So, you know, 23 years after the event, I, I did get a little curious as like, what, what's his deal kind of, you know, like what, who was he really? And why, you know, why do I know so little? And so I just, that sort of led me down a little bit of a, you would call it a rabbit hole, except there wasn't a very deep hole because mm -hmm. when you actually begin to look into who Dodi was and, and what his life was like, there's almost nothing. Like it's, it's really almost, almost eerie how little there is. Mm -hmm. um, and the deeper you dig, the less you find or what you do find is sort of uh, through a very, very specific lens, mm -hmm. which is largely a lens that, that sort of views him in kind of only in relationship to Diana and not yeah. like who he was as a human being. And like, mm -hmm. this is a person who, you know, died tragically. And um, so that idea got planted. And I mean, and I'll be, and I actually haven't told this that many times, but like the real honest answer is like why this play exists is that I thought of the title. I like, I, I was like, <laughs> I was like <laughs> Dodi and Diana is a really freaking great title, you know? And yeah. I was like sitting in a car in Florida with my husband during the first year of the pandemic. And I was like, I'm gonna write a play called Dodie and Diana. I don't know what it's gonna be about, <laughs> but I think that's good. I mean, it's gonna be about Dodie and Diana, but like, I was like, that's a really good title. Mm -hmm. And that, and that was it. That's all I had for maybe the first six months was the title. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that Dodie was sort of like erased from, mm -hmm. from history. And then, you know, now there's a play that like somehow is actually getting produced in New York right now, <laughs> which is wild. I, Kareem, I remember in an interview you speaking about like this erasure of Dodi, mm -hmm. but also mentioning where you could, you did find like a little bit of information about his dad at least, um, and something about maybe his dad trying to find some type of justice or um, information about his businesses or something like that, but it still wasn't even very much. Is that correct what I'm saying? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, I think the, the, the thing that lingers in a lot of people's memories is a lot of what Muhammad Fayyad, who, Dodi's father, um, who, you know, is the, the owner of the Ritz Hotel in Paris, which is where this play is set, and was, of course, for many years, the owner of Harrods and is a very successful, you know, businessman who really kind of, for many years after the car accident, you know, put a lot out there in terms of you know, the reasons why this event might've happened. Mm. Um, but again, what, what I find so telling about, you know, and potentially motivating uh, of Muhammad's uh, actions is also just that, you know, a lot of people said a lot of negative, really disparaging things about his son, you know, pre and post his death. And I mean, I can't even imagine being in that position as a father of like people sort of spreading all this misinformation about, mm -hmm. you know, your child who's died tragically and, sort of trying to reclaim that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, for me being an Egyptian man, it's like, it's hard not to feel a little bit of um, sort of a connection to the idea of like, well, what place do I hold? And like, am I important? <laughs> you know, is my story important? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a lot of those ideas and those themes ended up weaving their way into the play. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. The yeah. giving giving voice to 
something that's been ignored or silenced, which is so, oh gosh, prevalent. <laughs> it's just so prevalent. Um, as much as I obviously love the theater, um, there's just, you know, a, a very, a certain narrative that, that, um, usually comes to the forefront. And so one of the reasons I'm very excited about this, this play is because it's through the lens of a group of people that we don't often see anywhere. Yeah. Period. But <laughs> yeah. like least of all, you know, the theater. So I, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled that you got excited about a title and then it became this. <laughs> I know it's true. Yeah. Well, what made you kind of decide how to work the story into the title? It's a really great question. And it, and it's the, the sort of alchemy of that is so strange because it, to me, I've noticed this about, and I don't know how it works with other writers, but it's certainly true of me. It's like, you plant these seeds in your, in your subconscious mind, you know, it's like, I'll take this thing and I'll just like plant it in my subconscious. Right. And it's like, I, I think I referred to it as one point, like a, one of the, like a stone that you rub so much that it starts to become smooth. It's like, it's like your subconscious mind is like slowly working, working your way into it and trying to figure out like what it is and why, why. And, and I also find that like when those ideas continue to live in your mind after months or sometimes years that like there is something there that you you need to be exploring right sure. and yeah Jody and Diana was one of those ideas I just never left my mind but I didn't know what to do with it and then it was mm -hmm. sort of came as a lightning flash where I do think that I was aware maybe not at the time that the idea was planted but then later on that I was like oh this anniversary is coming up and like what do we and I was thinking about myself 25 years later mm -hmm. like how we look back on these sort of like moments of time where the world does sort of feel like it's standing still for a second. Yeah. And what do we, what do we take from it? And then I just realized I had to explore that from the point of view of two people experiencing that in the present action and not living in the past. Um, so then I was like, Oh, okay. So it's two people today or, you know, 2022 looking back on it. And then once I had that idea, I was like, well, who are these people? And that was then the idea that obsessed me for a while. Like, who are they? Who are they? Who are they? <laughs> and then one day I was like, oh, there's a guy. Oh, and there's a woman. Oh, and they're married. And, and then that's all I knew for a while. And then I was like, oh, wait, she's an actor. And what is he? Oh, maybe he's a banker. And then it's just like, it, it, so it's, it makes it sound like I just pulled it out of thin air, <laughs> which I sort of did. But at the same time, it was like inside me, right? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, I think like maybe like any writer, you know, mm -hmm. both of these characters contain parts of me and parts of my experience and parts of the experiences of, of people in my, you know, circle and family and, mm -hmm. and, and universe and, and all of the magic dust of, you know, fiction as well. Um, yeah. And now they are alive in a way and being embodied, you know, every night at Here Art Center by two wonderful actors. <laughs> I actually have a question. May I jump in with a question? Absolutely. <laughs> How did uh, sort of astrology find its way into the play, Kareem? I, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't take a very deep dive into Diana's story to that, to find astrology. You know, astrology is pretty upfront. I mean, she was very, very well known to, to have been a devotee of, of astrologers and other types of, of advisors. Um, and uh, I, as Adrian, this is a leading question from Adrian because Adrian knows that I <laughs> have been going to an astro. I have a wonderful astrologer. Um, possibly some people on the, who are listening to this podcast know him because he's a very well known and well respected New York astrologer named John Marcasella, who's been, you know, sort of an astrology guru for for decades here in New York. And I started seeing him, um, gosh, more than ten years ago, and. You know, one of the very first things he told me, my first reading, is that my chart, my astrological chart, was almost a perfect replica of the chart of Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know what to do with that at the time, but I was like, that's good. Like, that's, that feels to me like a positive. I was like, Barbara Streisand is really fucking talented, you know? Um, and, you know, multi-hyphenate. So I, I was always interested in the idea of, like, how one might look at your own life's experience when you are looking at it sort of in relationship to a very well-known 
figure. And, you know, this is a bit of a spoiler for the play, but not really because it comes up very early in the play. But the characters in the play who are named Jason and Samira are, are believe themselves to be the astrological doubles of Dodie and Diana. So because I was I was aware of this idea that like you can learn about yourself by seeing how your chart is in relationship to other people's charts mm-hmm. um, became like a seed idea that then helped tie these two couples together um, in the play. And, and that's very much due to the fact that, you know, I have this astrologer that I go to and who, who also came to the play and gave notes and, oh, you know, so all the astrology in the play is, has been verified, rubber stamped by a professional. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So Adrian, so you tell us your side of the story and how this all got started. (laughs) Well, I, so I have known Kareem for, I don't know, almost a decade, maybe more Kareem, something like that. Um, But, you know, I'd gotten to know his work quite a bit as a director and, and been a fan of his. And during the pandemic, when people were zooming, um, my husband told me that he was Zooming with Kareem and I knew that they did not know each other. So I was very surprised <laughs> to learn this because also I don't, like my husband was not Zooming a lot with too many people. He wasn't his thing. So I thought, okay, what, what are you two talking about? And, you know, but because my, my husband's pandemic pivot was to uh, learn Arabic and become, uh, start making comedy videos in Arabic and become an <laughs> influencer in Egypt. Um, I think Kareem, did you reach out to Brian to to have a conversation? Yeah, I think I'd seen one of his videos, and like you know, here I am, like a born and raised like Arabic, Egyptian Arabic is actually my mother tongue. It's what I spoke before I spoke English, and here's freaking lovely white Brian speaking better Arabic than I do. I was like, sorry, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I can really be at. Who speaks better Arabic than I do? Um, and I had already been thinking about, you know, if if what how interesting would it be to have a white guy sort of embody uh, an Arabic speaking and Egyptian character? And so yeah, Brian and I ended up just like hanging out and and, and doing like a Zoom or FaceTime. Yeah. And I think I got jealous that they were zooming, so then I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna zoom with Kareem. And so we caught up, um, and I think you shared this, you know, nascent at that time, maybe no paint, no script had been written yet. Um, this idea. And we commissioned Kareem in maybe late 2020, I think, is that feel true, Kareem? Um, or something early like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. It was like spring. So I don't know what, yeah. Yeah. I guess spring 2021. No yeah. Spring 2020. Um, yeah. 21. Yeah. Right. And then we, we started talking and I just, I love the idea. And I, I think I was also, um, you know, intrigued by Dodie and Diana, but also very um, like as, as many of us have sort of um, been both like compelled to learn more and horrified by what we learn from the Meghan Markle, um, Harry sort of breaking open of uh what what has gone on and um I did feel like there was something really interesting about a sort of um it it felt like a a cycle in in some ways and um I also am drawn to these like looking at interrogating our relationship with these you know global moments um and how they're treated at the time and how a 2022 lens would look at them or um process them and uh early on Kareem and I shared our own stories of how we sort of experienced the news in 1997 Mm -hmm. uh and and sort of like what what stayed with us um and and also it was always it, or it became increasingly interesting as I went back um, and thought about th- that being like four years before 9-11 mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of looking at some of the language that was used and sort of how things shifted um, after 9-11. But yeah, I just I just really was drawn to working with Kareem and to the story um, and the challenge of uh, a two-hander. 
the theatricality of the premise. So, so we, we started really working pretty, um, you know, just in conversations for a while. I remember like lots of phone calls where, where I was walking around with masks and everyone else was in masks, but I was talking to cream and, um, and then it, it sort of, uh, snowballed over the last several months and really picked up momentum in the spring. And we got to do two workshops this summer. And then I'm so thrilled that this is Kareem's uh, professional debut as a playwright. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. In How a year much? where he has eight productions of three different <laughs> plays. I follow him on Instagram. So I, yeah, <laughs> so he's got a lot going on. Yeah, Adrian like snuck it. Like I had all these other productions lined up and she's like, so should we do Donate in the fall? And I was like, well, wait, that will make it my first production. And like, here we are. So well, it just felt like we had to do it at the same time as the 25th anniversary since the play is yeah. set during the 25th anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's I, cool. I'm really, I, I just got stuck on the idea of like patterns. Um, mm -hmm. When Adrian, you were just talking about the pattern of Meghan Markle mm -hmm. and the Harry situation, Dodie and Diana, and then also like what we're seeing happening all over, like globally right now and how um, we're having this period of feeling like history is repeating itself. Um, and I, you know, recently had conversation with, you know, somebody who's been through, like they were just talking about how their father um, had, you know, escaped the Holocaust. And that's not that many generations before us, but here we are in this moment this play is discussing something that needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's so relevant to our current climate. Um, can you all speak a little bit on that and how you feel it's relevant to our current time, what we're experiencing in the world, the patterns that we, that we go are back getting to stuck in. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. are just um, negative uh, <laughs> and how, you know, I think this, this feels like the right time for this conversation in this way. Start I, mean, I could, I could, I could, it's interesting, right? Cause it's like every, I, I've been asking myself this question so much about, you know, what it means to be creating art period. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I think like, like with, with our particularly theater, right. Like what, what I experienced and I think so many people, you know, maybe the theater geeks out there who are listening felt the same way. It's like during our, our pandemic shutdown and sort of what our industry was becoming, what we were talking about, what conversations we were having about mm -hmm. what work is worthy, what the work means, mm -hmm. what does it mean that we're making or not making work? Mm -hmm. You know, it really does. It was so many deep and so many profound questions that sort of came up. And I also think a lot of in my mind anyways, like a lot of very sort of knee-jerk reactions to what we should be doing that weren't always fully thought through and not always kind of based on like a really deep um, response to sort of our, our, our current moment, right? And, and mm. so for, for me, you know, I, I, and I'm being like really honest, it's like I always sort of had a hard time understanding like what is my value as an artist when I have been told throughout basically my entire career, professional career, that like the thing that makes me <clears throat> worthy is the fact that I come from a different, mm. you know, culturally specific community that is underrepresented, right? And that's yeah. like, you know, a big theme in the play and that, and the reason I think ultimately I had to make one of these two characters, the, the Middle Eastern character, an artist, she's a, she's a performer, she's an actor, not a writer director like me, but you know, she is an artist and she's creating work that in that creation of that work is carrying her cultural specificity being in the fact that she is a Middle Eastern artist. And one of the mm -hmm. things that she grapples with actively in the play, and it's just a big sort of thematic idea, is like, how can she be seen beyond just her race and identity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it mean 
you know, for her to just say like, I am just an actor, you know, like I can embody anything. <laughs> There's a sort mm -hmm. of joke in the play when she talks about having played uh, Maggie in Cat in the Hot Tin Roof and saying that she's like explaining non-traditional casting to these people who are not in theater, you know, and like the theater <laughs> people always like laugh at that joke. But like, it's, it's the reason that's there. And the reason I thought a lot about it is that, you know, we have been sort of fed this narrative in the last couple of years that like now is the time that we're embracing underrepresented stories and, you know, ever the BIPOC people will be flourishing and, but it's, it's, that's not entirely true, you know, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and also a lot more complicated, you know, mm -hmm. than, than, than that. And, you know, my take on, you know, creating any piece of art is that like, it should be both timely and timeless, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm really fascinated with this idea that like, you know, people have like been saying about, I have, you know, as Adrian was saying, a couple of more productions coming up and one of them is about the Muslim ban and, you know, what's more like time capsule than like this period of time in 2017. And, you know, that was the play I was really actively working on just as the pandemic hit. And there was all of this momentum building around it and then it stopped. And I said, oh my God, you know, like, oh, I guess that play is dead. Like it's not saying anything because it's, it's now that the ban ended and all this kind of stuff. And then I realized that like what I was exploring in that play and the same thing I'm exploring here in Dodie and Diana is what it means to be a Middle Eastern and Muslim person living in America and how we are seen. And that story, mm. whether it's rooted in a specific moment in history, like the Muslim ban or the experiences that Samira is um, living through in Dodie and Diana as you know, this artist trying to feel legitimate when mm -hmm. people only want a pigeonholder. That, mm. that that's a that's a timeless story. You know? mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> like what like so yeah, sure, the play is about the 25th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana, but it's also about like how an artist self-actualizes, right? Yeah. How a marriage mm -hmm. how a marriage survives across racial divides. So, you know, I I I'm interested in like timeliness, but I'm mm -hmm. also interested in like I think I like to think that all great art should feel timeless. Um yeah. So that's what we're trying to create here. Well, I'm I'm famous for saying a story, a good story is a good story, right? Uh, and I think to your point, having your own voice and your own experience to back up your art mm. is timeless, right? But it's also kind of the thing that other people tell you to mute so that you can be more commercially accepted. And that's what we're kind of trying to get past, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh you're on mute yeah sorry i was, I was like muted. oh no did i, I say something muted, wrong but i was i was like vociferously <laughs> nodding and agreeing with you yes, yes. same yeah. same absolutely <laughs> um i i'm curious about the 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 marriage question because um i was rereading your pitch for cold core um and how you were saying you weren't interested in talking about another like um bad marriage but discussing like a marriage between two people who want to be married but discussing like what can be difficult in any marriage but particularly you know an, an interracial marriage and so can you talk a little bit about that and how that has translated into like the final writing of of the piece and also you know maybe a little bit also about what you think about um how interracial marriage is portrayed, particularly in the uh, American theater, um, and what's good, what's bad about it, what you would like to see be different, and also what you would like to be, because I feel like there's, you can have tension mm -hmm. in a marriage without it being that these people hate each other. And I right. find so often in plays, it's always, the tension is about they secretly hate each other <laughs> or that or that it's the end of the relationship. Right. There's just right. one more thing happens and that's it. That's where that tension is. But you're right. There is always kind of a tension play between a between two people in a relationship. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're even having a fight. <laughs> yeah. I'd love so, to yeah, hear from both question. of you, like Kareem yeah. as the writer and Adrian as the director. I'd love to hear about that. I've been talking a lot, Adrian. So you go first on this one. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, Kareem and I spoke at length about 
uh, both the nuances of sort of two artists in a marriage or two creatives and um, how when it, almost always there's like one person who's more in the it, more in this it, yeah more in the light yeah. <laughs> at, mm-hmm. at, at, a, at a time and how uh what the cost is mm-hmm. for the other person when that is uh the dynamic and especially if that is a consistent dynamic over time and um it's I think if there are there are parallels to like one person being the breadwinner um, and, and it not being necessarily about um, fame or, or, or spotlight, but just um, sort of the, the person earning the money for, for an extended period and um, what the cost is. And I, I do feel like what we see because of the constraints that the premise um, of this place to stay in this room and, and stay honest, that's the sort of missive from the couple's astrologer, uh, you see this couple really navigate, um, you know, sort of not being able to use the, the techniques that we all use in our lives of distraction, avoidance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I need to go to CVS and just clear my head, <laughs> like, <laughs> which also I think we we encountered quite a bit uh, during the pandemic when for, suddenly we were staying staying home and staying with each other a lot more um, than we ordinarily would. And um, I, you know, I think that I've heard from several people who are single, who, who saw Dodie and Diana, who feel like, you know, the person that they were living with during the pandemic, especially early pandemic, like felt like a marriage and they like learned so much about what they want or need in a marriage without even a romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a roommate situation. Um, or a family member. And, you know, I do think Kareem and I are funnily like married pretty much the same amount of time, I think both like four years. Um, So we're fairly new to it. Um, And I think we both love it so much. (laughs) Um, And yet, like, you know, it's, there's so much to kind of look at and talk about and try to, you know, to put on stage. It's very, yeah, it's very rich territory, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are so many plays. I mean, that was the, one of the biggest challenge, right? Because I was like, oh, wait, it's going to be about marriage and commitment and about a married couple. And it's like immediately, you're like, there are so many plays about marriage, but then mm-hmm. ultimately there are always plays about unhappy marriages. Right. And like you, one, one could argue that, you know, this is that as well. But I was also much more interested in how, how the idea of marriage is also the idea of um, sharing, right? Mm. And that so much of the, like what you see in plays that deal with marriage conflict are in a way about, I don't wanna say they're about external conflicts, right? But they, they, they can be a lot about like, oh, you know, it's about children. It's about, um, you know, <laughs> uh, all of the, these external, it's about work. It's about all these external yeah. factors and all of those things found their way into Dodie and Diana. Ultimately, what I was really interested in is that, and I think what I experienced in in getting married, and it's actually funny to be having this conversation right now because I just left uh, a gathering where I was sitting with two friends of mine who recently got engaged and talking about, you know, what it was about the act of sharing that commitment publicly, which is really ultimately what marriage is. I mean, you can talk about all the you know, the paperwork and all of the other stuff that goes into <laughs> marriage. But like, to me, the thing that was so profound about marriage, about actually getting married is that it's a public act, right? And then yeah. all of these people were invited into it. And all of those people that shared in that event in, to continue to this day to sort of uphold a part of that marriage because they feel invested in it, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you are doing is sort of publicly saying like, here I am making this commitment to this person that we are gonna do this thing together and that we are invested in this thing together. And what I think is so complicated about marriage is like the seed of that can be true, I think, for any marriage. Mm -hmm. But what happens when people just get older, right? Mm Because people change, right? Like people do change. And the things that you think you want 
at whatever age you are, can mm-hmm. be different a year later, five years later, 10 years later. And there you are in this commitment with somebody. And what happens when, you know, that, that path that you thought was parallel or that you thought was yeah. converging is actually diverging. Yeah. And so that's actually much more intrinsic than extrinsic. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was really excited to explore that as the sort of thematic idea of the play of two people who are in love, who are committed, who want to be married, who are deeply, deeply passionate about one another, but are finding themselves moving in somewhat different directions. And how do you navigate that? You know, yeah. and it's so much of it is about, can you find compromise, right? Because in that situation, there has to be compromise. And having now been at the age of life where I've seen friends of mine get married and divorced and sometimes remarried, it's always around that issue of compromise, mm-hmm. right? It's all that idea of like, what am I giving up? And can I give it up? What does it mean for me to give it up? Yeah. And so those are deep, like deep, deep existential questions. And of course, I think when you think about the Jody, the story of Diana and Charles, which is what we think about, of course, it's like, look at the complexity of that, yeah. you know, like what Diana was being asked to give up. And ultimately mm-hmm. too, like what Charles was being asked to give up. Yeah, right? right. And like, and that is what ripped them apart is that yeah. they're finally mm-hmm. like, no, I can't keep compromising the things that I want. And I can't do that for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and so when it's, uh, when it's really so one-sided, but you, but to your, also to your point, I should, I'm going to say to your point a lot in this interview, I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when you get married, you're still two individuals, but you're put together. So there is kind mm-hmm. of like you, you will change. Diana was 19 when she was married and she married into a monarchy like that. The pressure in that externally is, astonishing right Mm -hmm. but then she like got out of it and now she's even more I guess in the public eye because she's she's the people's princess right so any relationship that she has is going to be I guess looked at put under a microscope um thought yay or nay you know and they look at Dodie and you don't really know who that is nobody knew who he was really except the son of a really wealthy guy but everyone has their opinion about him. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that enormous pressure, you know, I mean, look at what it led to. Right. So it's, it's, but I also think like, even though that's a big scale thing, I think that those same pressures of expectation can happen even in, you know, a marriage between two people you've never heard of, which is essentially the story of this play. Adrian, can you speak on, you know, when you're directing these two people and you're looking at the nuances of that, the confined space, um, and also like, did you take, did you have conversations with the actors about their experiences? Um, like what else did you bring into the space to kind of inform your choices? So, we had so many conversations. Uh, <laughs> I think, especially because some of the development was not in New York City, and we got to have that opportunity to have meals together and have drinks together and go on walks together. Uh, we really got to know each other very well, and you know, Peter and Cream already knew each other very well, um, and it, and I got to know them really at the same time. Um, but I, you know, Peter is married and and had great insights and questions uh, from his unique lived experience. And, you know, obviously they're both actors um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, share that with one of the characters. And I think Rose's experience as a, an Egyptian woman and, and kind of uh, living many places uh, and, and sort of pursuing life as an actress in, in London and in the U S and, and what, kind of that um, exposed her to. She, you know, she's also an incredibly strong woman with uh, deep uh, or high emotional intelligence. And and I think her her insights about the character like really um, helped the play grow. One thing that I was sort of very uh, compelled to try uh, and that I, that I brought to our scenic designer Alexander Woodward was uh, I was I was very interested in putting the audience in a different relationship to the playing space and mm-hmm. um, you know 
one of the things that the gifts of a black box is that you can reconfigure and and kind of disrupt that and so as audiences will see as they enter the space we have audience on two sides um and so what that does is you know you're watching the play and you're also other watching other people watch the play um and you know it feels like a tennis match and an alley and it and it's it, it makes you very very close to the action and feel very voyeuristic in their space and it also eliminates the a lot of walls which mm -hmm. actors can sometimes you know think a proscenium means that they are um constantly oriented and, and the audience can think that they should be oriented to like face front. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very not interested <laughs> in that idea. <laughs> and, and it's so fun and just really sort of drops you into this, this jewel box of um, a very confined space that like we are trapping these characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, you know, I loved working with Alexander Woodward and he's uh you know, I'd, I'd seen his work for many years, but one of the last shows I saw before the pandemic was The Sound Inside on Broadway. And he did that design. And I just thought that that design was so, had so much restraint and so much, uh, you know, I, I've never seen it. Broadway theater looked like so dark, hard to see anything in. And, and that was so haunting. And, and then like, you know, the set sort of revealed itself. Um, but he was such a great, sort of design dramaturg and collaborator that uh, also like really pushed the other designers and I to, uh, you know, constantly be sort of bringing in ideas that then, uh, be and because Kareem is also a director, he was very uh, excited by even anticipating like what, what could designers add that then we would add to the script and and how could that sort of play and collaboration um, make something even more theatrical than any one of us could have conceived or, or envisioned without the other. And, um, you know, our lighting designer, Eric Norbury, you know, in his preliminary research, he was sharing some images of the tunnel and mm. the, the way that the lights were sort of spaced in the tunnel was very evocative. Um, and, you know, we all know that our if you did do some research, you'll you'll learn that like it was a specific column that you know the car collided with, and um, sort of we all you know there there were scripted in the piece like before we had any design conversations, you know lots of like flashes of paparazzi, but we were sort of talking about like well what other kinds of lighting um, vocabulary would exist in this world, and you know car headlights mm. were something that was. That we were playing with and I, I uh, really respect Eric so much because he actually jumped in like the day before we started rehearsals we lost a different designer to another project um, and he was so game to really play and you know he even like bought pie um, tins and and you know kind of manually made little stars in them because we were trying to play with an idea that we ended up not using in the piece, but um, of sort of constellations at, at one lighting moment. Um, but the lighting is, I, I would say, like really um, innovative and mm -hmm. like really has a lot of sense of movement, which, you know, I think we're all used to Broadway shows having lots of moving lights and being able to achieve that. But downtown, you don't often feel like a, a ton of movement in uh, lighting design. And, and I'm really proud that, um, you know, all of the designers really, I mean, Hide Nakajo, who did our sound design, the, the, the like world of the play is so rich. And somebody in the talkback today made a comment, which was uh, very generous about how they felt that these sort of, even though it is one physical space, they really felt like the, um, the space immediately outside the hotel room door and the bathroom and the 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 plaza outside of the window and like that those spaces were really alive mm, and they wow. and they felt a strong sense of place so I was like he day he it's all he day I it also strikes me like all these elements also feel like Dodie and Diana in the car with the flashing lights and the paparazzi and then of course what happened to them it's it's um oh, man that's brilliant <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so 
the last couple of questions I have are just like, you know, what do you hope people leave with, you know, after they've seen this play, what, um, do you hope strikes them? What kind kind of conversations do you hope they have? Love to hear from both of you. <laughs> I, I mean, I just hope they have a conversation, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, I have this realization that came to me kind of early on in my professional life, or maybe not even professional life. But like, I think when you're an artist, this is totally me just like speaking for myself, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, my greatest, I think my greatest fear as an artist is indifference, right? Like mm-hmm. if someone is completely indifferent to the work that I have made, then that to me is more of a failure than somebody disliking it, right? Like yeah. I would rather somebody walk away be like well that was just absolute garbage and here I'm going to keep talking about why it's garbage which is like if you people who know me know that like I can get very passionate about the things that I love and the things that I, that I don't <laughs> love I could talk about them at length and it's funny because I remember when I was in graduate school many years ago there was like this piece that one of my colleagues had done and and I just like loathed it with every like fiber of my being. <laughs> and like all my classmates were teasing me. It's like, oh, you hate that piece so much. But like, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Mm. But and it was one of the most instructive things I ever saw because it's like I really had to sit with like why I didn't like it and, and what are the reasons I didn't like it. And then similarly with things that I see that are like absolutely transporting and brilliant. Like I keep on thinking about them years and years later, right? Yeah. And mm. so to me, it's like that is the intended effect of any artistic enterprise, particularly a theatrical enterprise, is that it sticks with you, you know, and then mm-hmm. it keeps bringing something up. It's just like, oh, I just hated that moment. Or my God, that moment was so amazing. Or, you know, but if you, if like really, like if, if somebody's like, wait, did I see a play on Thursday night? Like, wait, I went to see a play <laughs> called Donate. Like that to me is my greatest fear that it's like yeah. completely sort of erased. So to me, it doesn't really matter what conversation is mm-hmm. being had yeah. as long as a conversation is being had and mm-hmm. then ultimately you know I, I I think it is just so to me you know I, I I believe in almost in a sort of stubborn way that like there is something quite important and special about the idea of marriage like whatever marriage looks like for any mm-hmm. person which doesn't have to be a legal marriage but you know being a person who for you know most of life, my life couldn't get legally married and now mm-hmm. I'm legally married it's like you know I do believe in the idea of bonding yourself to to someone and the complexities of that. So I hope that, mm. you know, if there's one kind of like a, um, a a wonderful audience member posted something that like was really moving, which is like she's talked about thinking about the play and like about like how she is committing to her own relationship and the questions that it brought up in terms of like her own relationship. And that's that was really moving to me because it's like, what more could you want than somebody sort of seeing this fictional world that we've created and then applying some of those things to her own life and and forcing her to like sort of question, it's like, well, what does my commitment to my partner look like and mean? And, and, And so in a perfect world, like that is the thing that comes up for people. But I think that's one of, you know, countless things that could come up for people. Again, as long as they're not like shrugged, I saw a play. I forgot about it. What am I going to have for lunch tomorrow? Mm-hmm. That I think I've, we've done our job. <laughs> I I I love that idea of um, you know, as long as they they think about it because mm-hmm. it really does. When you dislike something or like something, it does reveal more about you to you and sometimes other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> than it does about the actual piece often. So I, I love that answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still passion. If you love it or you hate it, you're passionate about either choice, but you're absolutely, I think the opposite of love is indifference when you've complained. And and that's really, I mean, you could say that about the beginning and the end of a marriage too, as you know, you could love or hate the other person as long as there's still passion in it. It's, it's still a viable relationship. As soon as indifference creeps in, it's kind of done. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's intense. Yeah. So well said. Thank you. (laughs) Sometimes I say some good things. (laughs) Adrian, how about you? Yeah. You know, I feel that cream said so many of the things that I was thinking and I, (laughs) you know, the, the, the audience member that he was referencing is this wonderful actress 
Mukta Fatak and uh, who Ebony you maybe saw in Other World. Um, oh yeah. And uh, you know, I I was also really struck by the the honesty to uh, there's a moment in the play where Diana um, is. Oh, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't want to spoil it anything. Be a spoiler? I don't want to say anything <laughs> about that. Okay. So um, the, the sort of owning of our own um, uncertainties and how uncertainty does not necessarily, uh, it shouldn't always be a negative. It should, mm-hmm. it, it should actually, it's, it can be a reflection of like, deep excavation of the self um and you know in order to evolve and grow like sometimes we have to like really turn inwards and uh find happiness for ourselves before we can you know be in a a really happy union um and I think there's so much pressure in our culture to like like be happy and and show your happiness and Mm. um I think it's you know life is so much more complicated than that and just um really embracing the the like you know we spend three days with these people and I think at the beginning there's a bit of like performative uh like a cup what 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 does this couple think that they should do for each other to show each other that there's some version of happy mm. or that there's some version of uh attracted to each other or that there's some version of like sexy um and as the play progresses and we you know the the artifice drops um i think that's where the really you know the juicy depths of the relationship lie and so um you know i feel so badly for people sometimes who are like uh serial daters because i'm like oh it's like you only get the like surfacey stuff mm-hmm. and that and, and there's so much more to people um so yeah to just like lean into the the messy uh you know what ben platt said at the when he won the tony like <laughs> our like messy insides or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love that lean into the messy mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good yeah. <laughs> it's good um I think that's it. We just yeah. want to encourage people to go see Dodie and Diana. It's playing at Here Arts until October 29th, 2022. Um, <laughs> it is, I'm, oh man, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm so excited. <laughs> going this week. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for y'all to see it. <laughs> Can't wait for you to see it. Oh, man. Um, and so, yeah, if you all want to know where to get tickets, you can go to the Here Arts website. It's here.org. Yeah, yep. Here.org to purchase tickets. The um, shows are Tuesdays through Saturday nights at 8.30 and Sundays at 4. And on the final day, we also have a 4 p.m. Saturday matinee. Awesome. Okay. Are there any more talkbacks as well? Or no? yes, yes, on uh-huh. Sunday, the 23rd, after our ASL interpreted performance, we have a talkback with our intimacy director, Krista Marie Jackson. Oh, yes. Fascinating. She's going to be great. I love Krista Marie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's and we like also, a whole other podcast. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and we also have a conversation with the actors, which is, I think, the final Wednesday, the 26th, after the show. October 26th. Okay. Yes. And then people can also go to Colt Core on Instagram to watch the live. So there's a, a live with Kareem. There's a live with Adrian. And there's also a live with the actors that happened just this week. So I encourage you all to watch that. They're all really interesting conversations. And um, and there's I mean, a cool teaser video too. For yes. Sure. Yes, there is. Also <laughs> at Colt Core on Instagram. So thank you so much for listening, geeks. Yes. Thanks thank for having you. us. And um, <laughs> this was fun. For, I'm so <laughs> glad you all uh, could make it tonight. We just really had a wonderful time speaking yeah. with you. And um, we're so excited for this. And we are excited for the life of Dodie and Diana. And hopefully even after this production, it'll get more productions so that more people can see it because yeah. it needs to be seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, y'all. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, guys. Good night. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast, Theater Geeks Anonymous. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGABWAY and on Facebook at Theater Geeks Anonymous. And if you want to tell us how much you love us or you have a great story about one of the shows we've talked about, drop us a note at TGABWAY at gmail.com. You can also support us by going to patreon.com forward slash T-G-A-B-W-A-Y. Until next time, geeks. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.